0: welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to season two. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things for you. We have question of the week, because how could you go a week without it? We also have special guests joining us from the Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto, Canada, Eitan Amir, and he's going to talk about a new paper revealing disclosed and undisclosed financial conflict of interest. But first, we're going to talk about talking about toxicity. What we've got here is a failure to communicate. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a perspective by Dr. Sachs, Miller, and Dr. Dan Longo. He's back. Little old Dan Longo's got another editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine, and you won't want to miss this discussion about talking about toxicity. We're going to be talking about the article, Talking About Toxicity, and you won't want to miss this on Plenary Session. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. All right, let's jump right in. There was a blistering perspective this week, October 10th, 2019, in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was called Talking About Toxicity, and this made a point that's been made frequently in oncology, that when you go to a cancer meeting, you hear words like safe and effective, toxicities are manageable, it was well-tolerated, generally well-tolerated. These words pervade the feel of oncology. And let's be honest, why are these words used? They're used to downplay toxicity. And why do we see many, many parties downplaying toxicity? Well, because the people who are reporting the results of clinical trials are the companies that stand to gain or lose billions of dollars based on the interpretation of those clinical trials. The people literally speaking are often consultants to the company who are paid handsomely for providing the company with Information the company probably already knows they're really being paid so that they can engender and cajole favor in those, quote-unquote, thought leaders. So we have this pervasive problem in oncology. Everything is perennially safe and effective. Toxicities are always manageable. Everything's well-tolerated. Our manuscripts come out with considerable spin. Um, they often come out, as I've discussed on some prior episodes, lacking basic information that a, uh, that a careful reader would want to know. For instance, the Beacon trial, which I talked about last week, that New England Journal of Medicine paper— This commentary further reinforces the point that we need to become clearer and more articulate about what generally well-tolerated means. We need to stop using this as empty branding. But I think what jumped out at me about this paper is that one of the co-authors is Dan L. Longo. That's what jumps out at me. Dan L. Longo, of course, was a distinguished investigator at the National Cancer Institute. He pioneered combination chemotherapies, including promocytobalm. And if readers are very interested, they can read the letter to the editor that Dr. Longo wrote in response to the 1993 article by Fisher and colleagues which showed that CHOP actually did better than Prome-Cytobalm, had equivalent efficacy with less toxicity. You can go ahead and see what Dr. Longo thought about that in 1993. Dr. Longo, of course, then became deputy editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, a position he's held for, I believe, over a decade now. Thus, Dr. Longo is in charge of what articles are chosen in the field of hematology and oncology, the editorials that are written, how those articles are written and how they go through peer review. So I find it quite interesting that Dr. Longo himself is faulting articles for using misleading or downplaying terminology around toxicity. Interestingly, the authors have selected references that appear, oh, not in the New England Journal of Medicine. Of course not. They appear in the JCO. I feel as if the authors have gone out of their way not to point out the many, many instances where they themselves have permitted this language in their own journal and instead want to pick on poor Steve Canastra and colleagues at the JCL. Well, so be it. So I guess what I'm dancing around is that this is really a masterful piece of irony. Um, This is an unbelievably hubristic act to do which is when you are anointed as the deputy editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and you have been given the power to decide how articles are reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, whether or not you will make authors provide unredacted protocols, whether or not you will compel authors to provide detailed information on prior therapies, detailed information on post-protocol therapies, detailed information on the use of crossover, how often it occurred, detailed information about clinical trials. When you are in a position where you could have called for increased data sharing but instead you call those people data parasites and you are the same person who writes an article saying why do we permit so many uses of downplaying toxicity hmm it's not we who are permitting it it is you who has permitted it you are the person in the position to enforce this you could have made these manuscripts better you could have allowed data sharing in your journal so that independent investigators could read through what what patient reports of outcomes are so that they could you could have mandated the the universal reporting of health related quality of life if that was an endpoint of your study In other words, the person who's crying about the problem is the almost only person who is positioned to fix the problem. I find this to be the height of irony. And I tweeted, of course, that somebody should send this cheeky piece uh, by Dan Longo to the editor in charge of this problem at the New England Journal of Medicine, who happens to be, oh, look at that, Dan Longo. Uh, So I guess I'd say that this is really, it's really quite rich. Um that somebody would be complaining about a practice that they themselves have ushered and permitted um, in the literature for at least a decade. and I and I think that the ways in which we downplay toxicity, it's easy to cite that as an example of um, you know spin and poor manuscript production, but it's really one element of a broader pattern of spin and poor production of manuscripts, which includes I think providing proper descriptive data about patients before and after, providing information by where the trial was run, more information about how many people who are truly treated according to the U.S. or perhaps some nations in Western Europe standard, how many people are being treated according to different standards globally. I think that would be important information, whether or not data sharing is going to be a part of clinical trials. Dan Longo has the power to improve upon the dissemination and reporting of oncology clinical trials. And he has not chosen to enforce that power. Uh, in fact, uh, oncology clinical trials are routinely reported in the journal that are threadbare, that are barely better than a press release. And last week, we discussed the Beacon trial, which is one such example. And here he is on a soapbox crying about why these terms are misused um, when he himself has permitted the misuse of the terms for. A long time. So I guess I would say that hypocrisy or irony are words that Dan Longo should probably consider. Another word he might want to consider is mentorship. If you look through past editorials in the New England Journal of Medicine, go ahead and look at how many were co-authored by Dr. Dan Longo. Look at how many were written by junior faculty and look how many are written by esteemed and senior faculty. I, I believe you will conclude as I have concluded that Dr. Dan Longo likes seeing his name in print. He likes adding his name as co-author of many, many editorials. He also likes empowering people who are already empowered. There are more senior authors than junior authors. Very rarely do you see a junior author writing an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, I guess I would say that Dan Long is the problem here. He's not the solution. And His arrogance to think that he's the one pointing out this problem, which has been pointed out many times before, uh, most recently by Gay Wally and colleagues in analysis in the BMJ called Reporting Harms More Transparently in Trials of Cancer Drugs. I mean, really, it's really astounding to me that Dan Longo thinks he's telling other people something they don't know and that he thinks that it's a problem that he has not contributed to perhaps more than any other person on the planet. I mean, it's really it's really his problem that he made. He was the one person who was well-positioned to fix this problem, and he has never fixed it, and he allows manuscripts to be published that have lousy reporting um, and tons of spin and are written by medical writers, which he has never curtailed, and now he's complaining that those things occur. So I guess I, I don't know what to say. I'm at a loss for words at the level of hypocrisy here. But I think people who are interested in these kinds of putting your foot in your mouth moment, um, would do well to read another article by them about data sharing and using the the colorful term research parasites. And then I think you should also look back at that letter in 1993, when you had a randomized controlled trial showing CHOP was better than promocytobalm, equal efficacy with more favorable toxicity. Let's see how Dan Longo thought about toxicity back then. Go back and check that letter to the editor circa 1993. I think you're going to love it. Well, on that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Etanamir. Amir. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Eitan Amir. Dr. Amir is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto, where he specializes in breast cancer. He's also Associate Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and he is the author of many, many papers that I've enjoyed reading over the years. Uh, Dr. Amir, it's a pleasure to have you here via Skype. Thank you for the invitation. So um, we're here to talk about a recent paper that you had that appeared in the journal Cancer. And this paper is entitled Undisclosed Financial Conflicts of Interest Among Authors of the ASCO CPG, or Clinical Practice Guidelines. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what are the CPGs Um, before we dive into your paper. What is a CPG?
1: Well, uh, a clinical practice guideline uh, is uh, essentially a a review of available data uh, with some a grading of the quality of those data, and then some recommendations for clinical practice. Uh, That's essentially what it comes down to. Um, There are some CPGs that are authored uh, by professional societies, like the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which was the focus of our paper, and some that are done um, separate from that, perhaps by independent groups. Ah, uh, so there are obviously slight differences in the application of that terminology, uh, and that does make a little bit of a difference, especially with the uh, with the view to who sponsors them.
0: I see, and would it be fair to say that in a field like cancer medicine? CPGs are always uh, in the gray. They're never black and white. Uh, There are few decisions that we have robust randomized controlled trials and they're indisputable. But so many decisions we make require judgment, especially the judgment of perhaps uncontrolled or inconclusive or circumstantial research. Is that fair to say?
1: I think we're actually quite lucky in oncology is in that at least for the common tumor sites, we actually have a reasonable amount of randomized data. I think Mm -hmm. that... Um, that might be diminishing over time with the desire to speed up drug um, uh, development and approval so i think we're seeing uh, an increasing amount of drugs entering the marketplace based on um, more limited methodologically uh, speaking more limited uh, uh, data that said a lot of drug approvals in the common sites um, uh, remains uh, based upon randomized trials but i do agree that there does still remain um, some nuance. Um, There are many patient groups who are underrepresented in clinical trials, Um, there are obviously issues of generalizability of clinical trials, so there is certainly a gray zone even when randomized data are available.
0: That's well put. So tell us a little bit about what you decided to explore in this paper and what you found.
1: So this is really a follow on from a previous uh, piece of work which we published uh, about uh, four and a half years ago in the Journal of Clinical Oncology where we looked at uh, not just clinical practice guidelines but all types of recommendations which include uh, those that are not sponsored by professional societies. And uh, what we actually found there was that um, the presence of disclosed uh, conflict of interest of authors uh, was associated with an increased odds of endorsement of a particular drug product. So, this is a number of years ago now. Uh, and always the question has been what happens if you look at not just the disclosed conflict of interest, but also those that have been undisclosed or potentially under disclosed. And for that, really, what we needed was a database of uh, payments to. Uh, the the authors of these practice guidelines um, with enough maturity and of course the open payments database uh, which uh, follows federal uh, regulation in the United States from the Physician Sunshine Act allows us to do that we obviously wanted to wait a little bit of time after it uh, initiated back in 2014 to be able to have a sufficient number uh, of years of data uh, so the main purpose of this particular study was to look not just at the disclosed but also the undisclosed uh, conflict of interest look at how often they are um, disclosed accurately in other words how often you can actually verify the disclosures that are there Um, and then uh, look at whether you can uh, evaluate any associations between failure to disclose or uh, ability to disclose uh, and um, uh, the type of uh, uh, clinical practice guideline, disease site, uh, type of authorship, etc.
0: So tell us what you found. So how how many people disclosed and how often were there failures to disclose?
1: So uh, first of all, it's, it's important to uh, mention that there are some limitations of the open uh, payments data set. So Let's talk uh, about it, it only it. applies to U.S.-based physicians. And of course, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology Uh, guideline uh, committees include some non-US based authors which uh, we will not have any data for Uh, there are a number of US based uh, personnel who are also exempt from reporting uh, people who work for non-governmental organizations so of the more than 300 authors of uh, ASCO uh, clinical practice guidelines over the last few years uh, really almost only around uh, about 40 to 45 percent of them Um, are actually um, not disclosing things and actually have data available to them. So the majority of of authors are actually disclosing and disclosing accurately, but there's still a substantial proportion who perhaps are not disclosing, um, at least compared to uh, uh, data available within open payments.
0: I see. And I guess I'd say I'll I'll toss out one more limitation of open payments, which is that it is only mandated for companies that have one product already on the U.S. marketplace. So, for instance, a company like Array Pharmaceutical, which has this beacon trial that just came out, if the product is not yet approved, all of those payments do not have to be uh, disclosed. But I guess in their case, Correct. their yes. product is approved. Yeah, so that's yet another. So you're saying that th- you, you do find, however, there's a fraction of oncologists um, in whom you can compare the two. And in that fraction... What was the rate of uh, failure to disclose uh, open payments?
1: So, the uh, if you look at the ones in which we have data, so which is a proportion of everybody included, and in addition to that, uh, you know, uh, also remove those that that, that are uh, for whatever reason are not eligible for including including in open payments. Mm-hmm. It was around fifty-five percent disclosed accurately. Uh, and others did not disclose accurately. Not disclosing accurately could mean not disclosing no conflict of interest and having received payments, Mm -hmm. or not disclosing certain payments as well. I see. So, uh,
0: I would say that that's slightly more than 50% is... um, That's not very good. That's a lot of room for improvement, is it not? There's certainly some room for improvement there, (laughs) yes. And I guess I would say that in my experience from following the newspaper, When there are um, claims that uh, people failed to disclose, um, there can be severe punishments. For instance, somebody might be, say, the physician in chief of a major US hospital, and they may be forced to resign. Uh, And then the real punishment is that they become executive vice president of a major pharmaceutical company, probably making three or four times as much money. Is that the kind of punishments we, we are used to getting for these failures to disclose?
1: Uh, I, I know exactly the case that you're referring to. Um, it, it's not really for, uh, for us as the authors of this particular uh-huh. um, uh, uh, article uh, to decide on what punitive measures should or should not exist. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what, you, know you, you could argue that working for industry is like a well-paid jail. Uh, (laughs) Yes. There are certain elements of freedom that you expect in academia that you perhaps may not uh, be able to generate.
0: That's true. But for the right amount of money, I'll spend a night or two in jail. Uh, So let me ask you this. Um, Give me a sense of the the people writing these guidelines, what percent um, and in whom you can assess, how many of them are conflicted? Is it 5%, 10%, 50%, 80%?
1: So it's difficult to actually provide an element of what is conflicted uh, mm-hmm. for for two reasons. Number one, um, some of the monetary payments are uh, quite small and you kind of wonder whether people have just forgotten about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there have been as little as, you know, registered payments in the order of around five dollars, which I assume would have been maybe coffee somewhere. Yes. Um, and, and other times in which some of the payments are actually... Uh, research payments—they may actually be going to the institutions uh, rather than the persons, uh, the person, uh, the, the people are actually writing these guidelines themselves. And whilst th- there is still a need to disclose those, I could understand why perhaps that might not be considered a uh, personal conflict or interest, especially if the funds are going to the institution rather than that. I think the 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 larger picture though is. And the reason that we try to focus mostly on ASCO guidelines rather than anything else is that the American Society of Clinical Oncology have had a number of policies about relationships with industry over time. Uh, they, they came out in 2014, uh, then they were rescinded temporarily and then uh, take, uh, then uh, renewed in a slightly more loose way. And, and, and because those um, uh, policies actually exist, we just wanted to see whether... Uh, you could really apply a, a sort of a pre-post analysis of it. And the interesting thing is that there are more payments being um, uh, paid to authors after the rescinding of these policies than before. Um, again, that's just a pre-post analysis. It's difficult to know whether this is causal or not, but I think that's an important consideration uh, because it's a potential area where a professional body could make an impact, at least in from the perspective of um, management of these conflicts. So I think that's one of those things. Now, in terms of how you measure conflict, I I think that it's, uh, I'm, I struggle really to define what really being conflicted is and how you should define it. That wasn't really the aim of this work. The aim of this work was to look at transparency. So then an individual author can, uh, individual reader can decide what they believe is conflict or not. Um, if you receive, uh, you know, $1,000 in an honorarium from a particular company, is that going to result in um, a, a conflict? Difficult to know. If you get, if your institution gets on your behalf, um, $20 million of research funding that allows you to uh, develop an international reputation and, um, uh, and and become a leader in the field, is that a conflict of interest? Potentially, yes, but you haven't received the money. So I think that the issue here is about transparency and being answerable to the public rather than really trying to define when is somebody being you know potentially conflicted rather than not
0: that's that's interesting i guess i would say i guess one thing i'd be curious about is like what fraction of these of the authors of the guidelines have neither any research payment nor any personal payment you know the truly they've not received any payment at all is it you know sizable or is it very small?
1: It's it's reasonably so. It's not it's 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 not zero. It's in the sort of fifteen to twenty percent range.
0: Okay, I see. So yeah, I see. So that that's 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 good to know. And I guess I would say that you know you you raise an interesting point, which is that. Um, You know, research payments, although we don't think of that as benefit to the person, it's not paid to the person, it may have indirect career benefits, as you point out, which is that um, it is good for your career to have shepherded some of these major uh, projects to completion. Many of these projects can earmark, say, you know, 3% or 5% of the total budget of the investigator's salary can be per trial, so an investigator can piece together the salary by having it go through the university but then pass to them, which will free them from, you know, clinical duties or administrative duties. But it's an interesting question. And I think you're right in the sense that for the purpose of your paper, uh, you know, you're not in the business of adjudicating what is a meaningful conflict or not, but just simply are these relationships being reported honestly and accurately? And what you're finding is that there is a high rate of inaccuracy, whether that's deliberate or uh, not indeliberate. That's also beyond your purview, uh, but it is higher than one might assume, um, and and it does kind of put into light, I think, the 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 stories in the New York Times last year which I think were egregious because the magnitude of payment was very, very high and mm-hmm. the number of payments was very high and the number of publications in which, you know, where where there was no disclosures and there was many payments uh, was so high that it seemed beyond what a reasonable person could forget about. Um, so it's sort right. of an egregious example. But you're saying that to some degree, this is happening quite often um, in, the, in this space. So um, I guess I would say, does this kind of work earn you friends in, in your work as an oncology researcher?
1: Uh, I, I, I don't think so, is the, <laughs> is the simple answer. Uh, I don't think these things are, are, are ever that popular, although I think it's important to know. I think I think from the very beginning, we aim not to uh, pick on individuals uh, and really look at the system as a whole. Uh, and, and really, the criticisms that we have here are on... Um, the professional societies and the journal editors that process them. um, Because I I think the point you made earlier on is that, you know, is it intentional or is it not? Well, you know, I can tell you that I've personally been involved in certain papers where if I would have been asked, what are your conflicts of interest, I would have given a list. But nobody ever asks me and then the paper comes out with it saying there's no conflict of interest um in that somebody else has made an assessment on my behalf that i don't have a conflict of interest now that i think i'm i'm just uh, you know shocked that we don't really have a electronic way of dealing with this some journals obviously require each individual author to sign that form and to submit it either electronically or by email Uh, And I'm surprised that that doesn't go beyond. And and really having a corresponding author answer on behalf of everybody else is perhaps something that we need to move away from. Mm. In oncology,
0: for instance, we have many, many people receiving consultancy payments for participating in ad boards. Um, And it is is much higher than other fields. When you look at radiation oncology or surgical oncology, when you look at even uh, nephrology or infectious disease, it's much, much higher. And I guess the question is, about the nature of the transaction, um, is this a transaction that is really being performed because companies, which often have former academics in leadership positions, for instance, uh, people who were uh, the chairperson of the department, say Gustav Rusi, or the physician in chief at say Sloan Kettering, you know, they are the senior pre- uh, senior positions in these companies. Some of these people have tremendous disease-specific expertise. They ran a clinic in that disease type, and they ran many, many clinical trials, and they're very smart, and they've written many review articles. So I think it's, it, So I, I go into this thinking that companies have many smart people who know a lot about clinical trials, and yet in certain fields, they're soliciting so much more advice than in other fields. That just happens to be the fields where there are many, many costly drugs coming to market, often based on disputable or at least nuanced to evidence. And so I guess I wonder, my question is, is the transaction here really a transaction of the companies needing the advice of often even junior people um, in a field to give them advice on a trial that's being run by people who are very senior with a lot of experience? Uh, Or is the transaction really, we'll give you a little bit of money and we'll ask you for your advice. and, And that combination psychologically makes us very close because i'm 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 asking you for your input and i'm giving you a little money saying thank you for your input and it doesn't matter if your input is useful or useless or something i already know it really creates a sense of loyalty in you it's a nice psychological double whammy um so i'm wondering how do you think of these transactions what is the purpose of this
1: so, I, I'm happy to answer the question, although this is now uh, substantially beyond the, yeah. the, the actual paper that we are doing, but, yeah. but, but I think it's a very interesting question, I'm very happy to answer it. I mean, I think certainly my experience of advisory boards is that um, uh, often they're not really about advice, and they're usually marketing tools. Yeah. Um, and, and really, uh, what you're doing there is being able to sit some people around and uh, feed them marketing material, uh, not necessarily ask them for advice. Um, so that's really uh, part of it. Um, my view is uh, similar to yours. There's a lot of very, very talented people in industry, uh, not just clinicians, but also people with training in behavioral science and many other issues that will tell you that you know there's no, there's no reason to spend this money if it doesn't really help so it must help in some way or other Mm -hmm. and that could be this issue of trust that um that you're talking about or at least um, being able to identify with a particular company rather than another and that may result in the way that you speak you might speak more favorably about a particular product or about a particular company than another um, or it could even lead to a different interpretation of, uh, uh, you know, clinical data and prescribing that might be slightly different at at, at, the, at the point of care. So I think there are pro- this is probably a multitude of potentially beneficial outcomes for industry. I can't imagine that they would spend the amount of money that they spend unless there was clear evidence that it's helpful. Um, and I and I'm sure these the, the, these data exist.
0: That's well put. You're in Canada, and in Canada, one of the major differences between, you know, your practice and, and the United States is that in addition to a regulatory body deciding what drugs are an option for someone in the nation, you have a careful adjudication deciding what drugs society ought to pay for. What are the drugs that offer enough value that they are worth it for all of us to pitch in and say, we will pay for these drugs and in addition to health services like controlling people's blood pressure and you know controlling people's diabetes, in the United States we have a different system. We ration care, but it's based on the ability to have access to health care. It's not based on the rational benefit um, inter- interventions provide. So my question is, do you feel, um, and maybe maybe you don't know the answer to the question, but do you feel as if um, the the role of these kind of ad boards, these kind of honoraria, these kind of Relationships between physicians and and industry is less in a nation like Canada because you, there's another gatekeeper there that may tell you, for instance, that um, you know uh, we we need to really vet a tezolizumab and triple negative breast cancer before you're allowed to prescribe it, for instance. And so 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 that there would be less of an incentive for the industry to cajole your favor, or your opinion is is this is you know what do you think about that idea?
1: No, so so I, I think the answer is probably, I mean, Canada is, um, as you say, you know, the, the public system here is is, is is different from many, I mean, I trained in the UK, where, you know, it's mostly public, but there is a private, uh, there is a private parallel program. Uh, so there's obviously the potential for, for these interactions to be more valuable for industry. But even beyond that, I mean, even in a public system where there is, you um, another layer that you describe of uh, uh, assessing the value, not just uh, whether it's, you know, the efficacy and the safety are appropriate, but really taking into consideration cost and value. Um, The the provincial governments, uh, or even at the pan-Canadian level, they rely on clinicians to provide them with information. And I think that if clinicians en masse request certain things, they are more likely to be looked at by these bodies that decide on what's valuable and what's not. So even there, there is some scope. I say. I, I, I suspect see. that the, the you know the the trade-off in terms of how much you have to spend in order to make more money is not as favorable as I perhaps in a mm-hmm. private system. But there's still some value there.
0: That's interesting. And let me ask you: Why has Canada and the UK, and this may be speculative, but why is it the U.S. that has the sunshine? Laws and not Canada, the UK. If I know a Canadian researcher, I can't look up their conflicts undisclosed. It's only through a quirk of fate that we have it for one nation in one period of time, half of 2013 to the present day. Um, but I would think uh, nations, th- th- these nations would have in, would have thought about these kinds of disclosure policies.
1: Uh, so I can tell you, in Ontario, this is as uh, uh, so, a you know where, where I where I am based. This is an area of active discussion, and and I would be surprised if. Uh, this didn't come about in the next small number of years. Um, uh, why is it not available elsewhere? I, I, I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't think that the effect is any less um, uh, in Europe, for example, than it is um, in the US. I, I think really it's an issue of um, just getting legislation there and, and mandating what gets done and um, US, the U.S. Congress did it, and, and other jurisdictions haven't. Um, you know, I think sometimes, the, you know, outside of the U.S. at least, the U.S. system gets a little bit bashed for certain things, but I think this is one where it is an international leader.
0: And that's a rare thing to hear, so that's why we'll savor it here. We'll savor that in the U.S. We don't get a lot of wins these days, I'll tell you that much, so we'll take whatever we can get. And we'll be back with more of the interview, but first, let's take a break for a question of the week. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Sven Olsen, known as Sven Jammin. Actually, I recently, I, I have to say,
2: I recently changed my Twitter handle. No, you didn't. I didn't see this. I did. Okay. I didn't publicize it, but I came back from a career development workshop where they basically chastised me endlessly for not using medical Twitter. So I changed it to be a little more. I don't know contemporary with what I'm doing. So what is it now? Now I am at svematologist.
0: Svematologist,
2: like Sven, but then it just blends into hematologist. Yeah, I, I, I got, I got, I got okay, that. Okay, just, yeah, yeah, just yeah, explaining. Yeah,
0: yeah, yep. yeah, yeah I, got, I got, that. I, I just, uh, that wasn't my first thought. But this was okay. a,
2: this was a poll from three friends on what wow. I should
0: make it. So, wow. So you're gonna get new friends now? Is that? Yep what i learned I'm All right, now a so twitter that's, expert. that's exciting so but you're saying at this um at this meeting you went to they made a big push for med twitter they really did i mean this was a medical education conference so of course they were going to push
2: for it but they had a whole slew of talks on you know technology and education and and I what do they think the benefits are of med twitter Rapid dissemination of ideas that's I think true. is the biggest one and good or of good or bad ideas good yeah, or bad yep, Right, yep. I think honestly, you know less less the you know, rapid comments from you know KOL's and things like that But more the fact that every journal now has a Twitter handle and puts out their papers and mm-hmm. you can quickly read through little You know sound
0: bites of them. So yeah, I think that's all good advice, but they encourage you to tweet more
2: they did um, There were several you know we all had to come with a proposal and there were several Uh, of my co-participants who had great ideas for you know doing some uh studies using medical twitter uh and sort of assessing use and patterns of use and things like that so
0: i think it's a big a big it's in the zeitgeist now it is medical education that's a good word so um you know i'm obviously very active and interested in med twitter for a long time i'm an early adopter there um but we were also talking before that yeah, you're looking forward to hearing the plenary session discussion of the Beacon Trial. I was, yeah. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming after we record this episode, probably before we air this episode. Yes. So by the time people listen to this, they would have heard it. All right. And you listened to the Flowera discussion. I did. So what did you think? Did I persuade you? Um, You know, I got to be honest. That was the, the
2: beginning of my week going to this conference where mm-hmm. it was filled with other things. So I can't... I don't remember all the details of what you did or didn't talk about I and that's the, I, that's the podcast didn't download fully so I only caught half of it so I only caught two of the four points that no, you we're we gonna get r- Oh boy.
3: <laughs> well, that's but it, I think your
2: that's... point about the the lack of baseline brain was that the one yeah, lack brain of baseline imaging. brain imaging yeah. was that, was, uh, one of my that four. was the biggest, the most compelling thing you talked about. So
0: yeah, I'm gonna revisit it on a future episode because people are, are talking, they're buzzing about it. I've gotten some emails, <laughs> and I'm gonna revisit that issue. So we'll come back to that. But you're here this time for a little bit of mea culpa. You're here to to get before <laughs> the plenary session, listeners, and say I'm sorry. I sphematologists have misled you. Oh, this is an
2: apology podcast. Okay.
0: But this is change. a bit of an, er- <laughs> an erotum. An erotum. Correct. A uh, a correction, if you will. Yes. So I I got this email from a astute plenard um, who asked to remain anonymous, so I'll preserve the anonymity. Wait, plenard? Plenard, plenard is what? That's a plenard a word? is a fan of plenary session. A is this plenard, something you made up or is this a thing? This has been made up by... People, people, there's a say, people are saying it. People are saying uh, okay. it. Okay. Plannard, and then there's plenaries. Okay, proceed. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, we don't need to talk about how many people are saying it, but people are saying it. So this, this Plannard writes I'm a listener of your Plenary Session podcast, which I really enjoy and find very insightful. Well, thank you. However, I would like to comment on episode 2.11. And specifically on the question about the 30-year-old patient with colon cancer. I was a bit surprised by the answer that was proposed to be correct. Could you please clarify if this was an official answer from an exam or an answer proposed as part of a podcast? Question mark. And your answer to that question is this was based largely on an official answer.
2: Yes. Okay. Am I allowed to say where no. it was based from? Okay. No,
0: but we'll just say it was official. It wasn't uh, dreamt up by a sphematologist. Correct. Um, I am only in training, so my comments may contain inaccuracies, but I'd like you to vet this with an experienced person from your institution, which we have done, Mm -hmm. but let's get into it. One. An important thing to consider is that the terms used in the context of Lynch syndrome are often confused by people who are not involved in this testing from the laboratory side. Briefly, testing for microsatellite instability in the tumor tissue by PCR looks only at the effect of the loss of function of mismatch repair, according to replication errors in specific regions of the DNA. As such, it is a great indicator of the mismatch repair system being non-functional. However, it does not allow to determine one, which of the proteins of the mismatch repair system is affected, or two, whether this is due to a germline or sporadic mutation immunohistochemistry for mismatch repair proteins in tumor tissue mlh1 mlh2 mlh6 and pms2 allow to detect the loss of nuclear expression of one or two of these proteins which is also a great indicator of the system being non-functional and then it goes on and on and before we get into all the things because this is a three-page thing and
2: well i think i mean i think i would highlight the what i took away as the biggest um uh issue that this listener raised which i think was a good one and they'll primary reason why I'm back here and to, hopefully issue to explain myself. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest issue um, that this listener took was that uh, the answer choices, and I suppose what would be yeah, helpful let, is if redo I the redo the question yeah, and I the question. give the answer choices. So yeah. this stem was a 32 year old patient who develops rectal bleeding, iron deficiency, anemia, has a colonoscopy, has a non-obstructive mass in the ascending colon, they biopsy it, it's adenocarcinoma, he has uh, intra-abdominal adenopathy, but no distant METs. He's estranged from his family and can't recall any family history of colon cancer. So the question is, which test would confirm or rule out the presence of a hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, HNPCC, or Lynch syndrome, in this patient?
0: Mm -hmm. And what were the choices?
2: The choices were analysis of microsatellite instability in tumor tissue by PCR.
0: Right. And that answer was incorrect because uh, you were asking the question about whether or not the patient carries a germline mutation. So looking in the tumor is not going to be a useful place to look, period.
2: Correct. So A is wrong. Yeah. B, BRAF mutation analysis and methylation status of the promoter region of genes encoding mismatch repair enzymes. Mm -hmm. And that would also be incorrect Mm -hmm. because that is typically done when you are assuming there might be a somatic mutation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Involving usually, I think it's MLH1. MLH1, I think, yeah. Uh, C, analysis of microsatellite instability in non-tumor tissue, which ends up being, per this question, the correct answer.
0: Right, and that's the answer I went with because mm -hmm. it was looking at non-tumor tissue. But this listener's point about this, which you're going to get into more, is that that's just looking at the sequela of the germline mutation and not the mutation itself. And that sequela may be absent in the normal tissue. Okay. Now, what's the fourth answer choice?
2: The fourth answer choice is
0: sequencing of APC. I see, which is neither here nor there. That's familial familial adenomatous polyposis, a different disease entirely. Correct. Okay. So the answer for this question was to look for microsatellite instability in somatic tissue. Correct. And the listener is saying that that is a technically incorrect answer. Correct. Because that is not a sensitive test for the Lynch syndrome.
2: And uh, this is true. You know, yeah. I've I now dove back into what, what guidelines I could find and what data I could find on MSI being performed in peripheral non-tumor tissue. Yeah. Uh, and I've spoken about it with one of our pathologists here, and yeah. they confirmed that this is this is correct. Actually, that this the listener is correct, and the answer uh, per this stem was wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the reason being, and as this uh, listener pointed out, yeah. and he or she wrote, and I quote: uh, "Lynch syndrome follows." Newton's two hit hypothesis for autosomal dominant disease. There's one defected mutated copy of the gene in germline that was inherited. And the other copy becomes non-functional as a result of an additional mutation or second hit. Mm -hmm. This means that in most of the patient's benign cells, one functional copy of the gene is still present Mm -hmm. from which functional protein can usually still be expressed. And Mm -hmm. therefore both IHC and MSI would likely be normal in testing non-tumor tissue. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I tried to find if there's actually any data for the sensitivity of MSI yes. in peripheral yes. or non tumor tissue. Yes. And it seems to be very low. And actually, it can't detect anything under 30%, which is what we usually consider to be MSI low. Well, I see. Is what I could find. Um, interestingly, there have been attempts to try to do this on non tumor tissue MSI testing, that is. And what they tend to do is uh, peripheral blood leukocytes. And mm-hmm. there's been some recent data published um, by someone out of MD Anderson. I think it's Mary Koolbaugh Murphy. And she uh, has done some pooled, it's called small pooled PCR, where they do some studies on peripheral blood leukocytes. And the details I'm not totally certain of, but increases the sensitivity of doing that on non-tumor tissue, MSI, but still not really clinically useful. It's just sort of an uh, interesting thought process. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is that, you know, looking at, so true guidelines for Lynch syndrome testing, and this comes from the 2014 guidelines on genetic evaluation and management of Lynch syndrome. A consensus statement by the U.S. multi-society task force on colorectal cancer. This was in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and this lays out pretty clearly, and you know the the sequence of testing. And as we had discussed in our prior episode, you know if you get MSI high in tumor tissue or IHC that's missing a mismatch repair expression on tumor tissue you're meant to go directly to germline sequencing not MSI testing of non-tumor tissue. Right. They don't even in fact have any discussion on using MSI or IHC on non-tumor tissue which kind of leads me to
0: believe that's just
2: not, not at thing. all a thing you do.
0: And and the and that let me quote again from the astute Plannard quote If the answer read, quote, sequencing of mismatch repair genes in non-tumor tissue, and that's all in capitals, uh, in germline DNA, end quote, then that would definitely allow to confirm Lynch syndrome if mutation was found, and is actually the gold standard. So what you're saying is, the recommendation is, if you detect MSI high in tumor tissue, the next step to confirm uh, or exclude the diagnosis of Lynch syndrome is sequencing of mismatch repair genes in somatic tissue. Correct. Uh, well,
2: usually what you do, so based on their guidelines, yeah. you do MSI yeah. or IHC on yes. tumor tissue. On tumor if you tissue. do MSI high, mm-hmm. you usually end up doing IHC, and then it gives you the protein expression. Okay. And based on that, then, you know, if it's MLH1, you're suspicious more of a somatic, you do the BRAF and promoter hypermethylation analysis. If it's any other uh, deficiency in an MMR protein, then you go down the directly to germline sequencing.
0: I don't want this listener to write in again, because I think the listener pointed out this problem, quote, it is true, this is from the listener, it is true that MLH1 loss is most often seen in sporadic cancers, but this correlation is not perfect. So one should never rule out Lynch just because there is loss of MLH1 before doing additional tests. And that's the BRAF or promoter methylation point. Correct. Right, okay. So what have we learned here, Sven Olsen? Um,
2: we We have learned that a question... Written in with good intentions by mm-hmm. a large society mm-hmm. should not be taken as gospel, right? Um, I have learned that MSI is really only to be used on tumor
0: tissue. I see. That is it. Yeah, I agree. I've learned that too. Clearly, um, and we've also learned that the detection of MSI on tumor tissue sets off a cascade of further testing, which keeps in mind uh, the possibility that this was. Seen an underlying Lynch syndrome, mm-hmm. but also keeps in mind the possibility that this was a s- somatic, sporadic mutation event. Correct. Okay, and the ways to separate it is one. Tell us the pathway again. So one, you find you document MSI high in the tumor. Mm-hmm. Then you look to see which of the proteins, the mismatch repair proteins, is non-functional. Correct.
2: And I should point out again that there's no stipulation that you have to do msi as the first test you can do ihc as well i see um and we talked about that a little bit in the last episode where we talked about it but if you do msi and it's high then you do ihc Mm -hmm. is what this pathway will tell you based on the ihc and the pattern of expression that leads you then towards potentially more likely a somatic or sporadic case which is usually most often associated with mlh1 but wait how does the
0: ilc tell you tell you that it will tell you
2: the expression of the different proteins. I see. Right. So if, okay. if predominantly so if it's, MLH1, it's MLH1 one, is missing right. gotcha. or is underexpressed, then you would consider looking for somatic mutations. And you do that by BRAF testing, which is often uh, mutations are associated, not causative, but associated with more sporadic cases um, and promoter, MLH1 promoter hypermethylation. You look for those two things. And, and if you
0: find those two things, you stop and you conclude it as a somatic mutation. If you find that you have um,
2: promoter hypermethylation, then it's less likely to be a, a true Lynch syndrome, right. and it's just a sporadic syndrome.
0: Right. Correct. And if you find b mutation, it's also, again, less likely to be a Lynch syndrome. It's sporadic.
2: And there's different branch points. This gets much more you know, branches off to different areas based on the, those two results. So I don't want to get into too much of the weeds there. Okay. If you have underexpression or lack of expression of any of the other MMR proteins, MSH2, MSH6, PMS2, then you consider more down the line, again, of true... Germline Lynch syndrome, in which case you would do germline sequencing of non-tumor tissue. Got it.
0: Okay. Lem- sequencing, not MSI or IHC. Okay. So let me say this back to you one more time. I want to get this perfectly right. We one. can call up the we can call up the flow chart, actually. Let's do that. Let's take- look
2: up this paper. Look up the guidelines on genetic evaluation and management of lynch syndrome.
0: Okay. We have a, let's start with the basics. You have a patient in front of you, and they had colon cancer resected on specimen, and that gets sent to the laboratory. And the first thing the laboratory does is perform MSI testing, looking for microsatellite instability, which is the downstream sequela of a dysfunctional mismatch repair protein system. And let's be
2: clear, this is not, should not necessarily be done universally, MSI testing, right? It should be done in people of a certain age. Correct. And a certain family history and other criteria.
0: Okay. You wanted to go through those criteria? Not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we did that last time. <laughs> okay. So so you go through MSI testing, and if it is normal, then there is no further testing needed. Correct. You go through MSI testing, and if it is high, then you do the next step, which is you perform immunohistochemistry, looking to see which of the mismatch repair proteins is missing, is, is non-functional or lost.
2: Lost expression.
0: Lost expression. Min- minimal expression. Right. And if that is MLH1- And here it's saying, and PMS2. Then you perform BRAF testing and promoter hypermethylation testing. The presence of BRAF mutations and the presence of MLH1 promoter hypermethylation also push you down the path of no further testing. This is unlikely to be a germline Lynch syndrome and likely to be a sporadic mutational event. Mm -hmm. The absence of BRAF mutation testing and, and or the absence of MLH promoter hypermethylation refers you forward to perform germline genetic testing of mismatch repair genes in non-tumor tissue. Mm -hmm. In contrast, if you did not have loss of MLH1 and PMS2, if you had a loss of a different MMR protein, such as MLH6, you would go forward with germline sequencing of mismatch repair genes in non-tumor tissue. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this makes sense when you understand the fact that Lynch syndrome follows the Knudsen's two-hit hypothesis, which states that the absence of one copy of the gene will not be associated with downstream microsatellite instability in the presence of MSI high because there's another functional copy doing the work. Mm-hmm. It's only when you get that second hit, which is more likely to happen in Lynch syndrome. That's why they have a higher rate of cancer. But it's only when you get the second hit that you have a failure of the mismatch repair system and you have the buildup of MSI high.
2: And another thing I want to point out that I, I read in another paper is that, you know, um, if you follow this knudsen Stewart hypothesis, people with germline mutations in all their somatic cells will have at least one that's still non-functional, right? So there you may reason that, okay, some of their somatic cells, you may be, if you had a sense enough MSI test, PCR could pick it up. But if you had a sporadic case, then actually that's all uh, in the tumor and all the You know, non-tumor tissue should have no mutations at all. Two functional copies. In which case, you would really detect zero MSI high. So, in that case, yeah, it makes total sense that if you would run MSI on peripheral or non-tumor tissue, I keep saying peripheral, then you really wouldn't catch a lot of these. So, if you see it that way, then
0: that makes more sense to me. It would be a very low sensitivity thing to do. Right. Well, this has been instructive to me. I enjoyed this um, detailed and clear explanatory note. I enjoyed even more the look on your face when I emailed it to you and followed up in person (laughs) to see what the stinging look of bitter defeat looks like I spit my coffee out of my screen (laughs) actually
2: I was very happy to see this Um, this was a really good point that was made and I'm glad I could because now I understand it better and honestly this points out too that uh, pathology and hematopathology and you know uh, surgical pathology is something that we think Maybe we know better than we do as oncologists and hematologists. Yeah. We really don't. Because this is
0: complicated. It's complicated. And I think so often it's like, oh, what do the path say? Or, right. What do the path say? No, there's more to it than that. It's not just what did the path say? Let's move on in tumor board. No, we have to think about these things. So I enjoyed it a great deal. And I think it also says that the the plenary session listeners are superior um to uh, the question writers uh, on the board's examinations i think we have a high tier of listeners so i'm very proud of this listener this plenard who sent an exceptional note that detailed inaccuracies with a question of the week which we have corrected on this episode of plenary session so thank you so much thanks dr olson i appreciate you coming back here to set the record straight and also all the all the legwork you went through you did discuss this with an expert pathologist and went through understanding exactly how this algorithm should be applied So thank you for that. And I'm glad
2: that I have arranged a specific lecture for our fellowship in the next month from one of our geneticists discussing this exact topic. So I hope to hear even more details and maybe I'll be able to point out some inconsistencies there. You did? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's excellent. All right. Well, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. All right. So that's a wrap. That's all we got. All right. Thanks for having me back. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to you about a paper of yours I read when it came out. I think when it was online first, because I, you know, it was that interesting to me. It got me, it was so interesting. It's called Failures in Phase Three Causes and Consequences. Maybe I'll say a little bit of background. You can tell me if you disagree with it or you want to put it differently. But I guess one way to put it is to say, um, you know, there have been a number of studies recently that look at the clinical success rate of a novel candidate cancer compound entering phase one. And I think some studies have pegged it between 6 and 10%, but I've seen estimates as low as 3%, and some things as high as maybe 20%, but something in that range. Uh, cancer drug discovery from entering phase one to coming to market, it's an uncertain thing and there's lots of failure along the way. One of the places we see tremendous failure is in the transition from phase two studies to phase three studies. and. Although we see this, and I think that's an empirical fact, not a lot has been understood about why that happens, uh, about um, what we can do about it and how we can make sense of it. And that's where your paper comes in. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think it is fair. I
1: mean, this paper is from uh, a few years ago. And and I think that uh, in that time... Uh, there's been a bit of a trend away from even needing phase three exactly trials. Exactly right. Drug so drug success rate is higher because we don't ask for it anymore. I- exactly. Yeah. So I- you know, if you if you um, assume that uh, success is drug registration based based upon a positive phase three trial, then um, that's a different metric than what we're using quite often. Where you know, if you look at drug approvals over the last you know, closer to ten years. Many of them are on the basis of single-arm trials with surrogate endpoints, which is a completely separate um, issue. And uh, I don't think any of them are, 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 would be called uh, phase three, let alone occasionally phase two. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think fair, but may not necessarily be where the world is going. Uh, yeah. Certainly not um, in the major um, regulatory areas such as the U.S. and Europe. Yeah. So, so, you're, so you're saying that
0: this is a paper a bit from a nostalgic era, an era in which we, fin- we subjected chemical compounds to randomized testing prior to market entry, and that's an era that is increasingly being forgotten? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Now tell me why you say unfortunately. I think there are some people, and I share your view, of course, that's what I want to hear you say, but there are some people who believe that um, randomization is not needed when you see um, measures of tumor shrinkage uh, that look good compared to your gut feeling of what tumor shrinkage should be in your clinic and, and that sort of thing. But why do you feel like there is a value for randomization, even for active agents?
1: Uh, well, so, so I agree with you. There have been certainly a number of drugs that have shown highly, highly dramatic uh, outcomes um, and, and led to drug registration even on the basis of phase one trials. You know, second uh, or third generation alk inhibitors in lung cancer being an example. Um, so you, you do occasionally see that, and then the, the 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 argument always is it even ethical to randomize against anything other than this uh, particular agent? And 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 I agree with that. But the problem that we have is that then you have a number of drugs entering the market that have been studied in, in sometimes. You know between 100 and 200 patients in total uh, at least disease specific patients i'm not talking about the trials that may have been done in in healthy volunteers um, and uh, you really have an insufficient degree of knowledge or confidence in safety and tolerability with these things sometimes and when the outcomes are not quite as dramatic you have to question at what point is that benefit worth the risks. Mm. I'm not suggesting that, you know, this is the case in all of these situations where you see dramatic benefit, but you know, there are plenty of drugs that have been labeled breakthrough therapy that have subsequently been approved through uh, priority review and accelerated approval mechanisms um, that if you apply validated measures of value to them, whether that'll be the ASCO value framework or ESMO minimal clinical significant benefit Um, they don't really provide a a large amount of benefit and we actually presented some data uh, on this at ASCO in one of the oral sessions in public health um, if you're interested in some of the data that I'm referring to Mm -hmm. so um, I I think the problem that we have is that you know some drugs are really good and they they, they should be allowed to go through but we've sort of bundled lots of perhaps more mediocre med- medicines in there that um, might not necessarily deserve the same designation and by the time they get approved through these um, prioritized systems, um, you know, if you then start applying them outside of a clinical trial setting, less fit patients, older patients, more comorbidity, efficacy might go down a little bit, toxicity might go up a little bit, you know so little, you have to ask the question about whether that's a safe strategy or not.
0: Yeah, I think that's well put. I think there's some pioneering work that came out of Princess Margaret now more than a decade ago that looked at response rate in early phase trials and compared it to late, later phase trials. And we know there's some regression to the mean. Response rates are going to go down even in the carefully selected cohort of a phase three, let alone the transition to real world where patients are older with comorbidities and the efficacy is likely to shrink and the toxicity is likely to enlarge. And at some point, we may find ourselves in the situation where we really start to ru- wonder if there's a net benefit Bit, as we're using the therapy.
1: And, and so I, I know exactly the data that you're referring to. And I think it's more applicable to cytotoxic chemotherapy than to the sort of more modern world of targeted drugs, which are administered in a in sort of chronic uh, situation. Because, you know, if you have a disease uh, that with a treatment that causes a very rapid um, response, but early failure, uh, and compare that to the same disease where the response is perhaps not as uh, dramatic, but perhaps is maintained for longer. And I think immunotherapy is a good example of this. Um, You know, response is not a great measure of long-term prognosis. Um, And I think that, especially with targeted drugs, you can sometimes see things that are, you know, stable disease or more, maybe things that don't quite meet partial responses by resist, but they can be prolonged for a a lot longer. And this sort of rapid bounce back of response and failure um, you know, you know, it it, it gives you a, a measure which might not necessarily predict the long-term outcome. So I think this is where um, sort of the old age of chemotherapy, um, it, it's more easy to apply to there than it is in, in the world. And, and I think the same also applies to toxicity. Chemotherapy is acute toxicity. It's usually short-lived and people recover. If you administer drugs in the chronic phase, even, You know, a month of grade one GI toxicity is probably a very uncomfortable way of living your life. Yeah. Well,
0: I'll tell you that that paper, maybe we will hear on a future episode when an embargoed manuscript is released, what happens in the modern world to the response rate over between phase two, phase three. I think it might be coming. So' it's just okay a teaser. excellent. happy to hear it <laughs> but um so back to your paper here, so you know in the co- in the failures of uh, in failures in phase three, so I mean, what did you find in this paper? What were some of the things that we could be doing um, if we were to care about the phase two to phase three transition that could um, make things better?
1: so i mean there are there are a number of different um, uh, steps obviously that are taken um, in a decision, and um I think it's fair to say that there is a desire to uh, get going with these things a bit faster than perhaps um, you want to. Now, I think there's a lot of criticism that cancer drug development is slow. Uh, and uh, I think if I was a patient, I would probably agree with that um, particular situation. Uh, but the other hand, speeding it up sometimes leaves you with, with holes in your knowledge. So I think that it's, it's fair to say that some phase three trials are initiated before you really know what the long-term toxicity of your drug tested at that phase three trial is based upon an ongoing phase two trial. So sometimes you're beginning a phase three before the results of a phase two are even available. So, you know, there's a little bit of overlap that's going on. Um, Sometimes uh, there's not a lot, or at least not enough information, especially when it gets to targeted drugs, about target inhibition. You know, does this drug even hit the target that you are thinking it's hitting? and you know does it inhibit it to a degree that you think is going to be important or not Um, and then there are other elements which are more methodological that obviously um, relate to you know what is um, realistic um, effect size versus um, one that you um, think might be useful to observe Um, Mm -hmm. and quite often what you see is uh, early phase clinical trials might show a relatively modest effect yet a phase three trial is powered to show a larger effect and of course there's no reason to believe that will occur if anything as you mentioned earlier on there might be a bit of regression towards a null effect as things go Mm -hmm. from phase one to phase two to phase three say if you see a hazard ratio of you know 0.75 to 0.8 in a phase two trial and a phase three trial that's powered to see a hazard ratio of 0.667 which is not uncommon Mm you know, that's not necessarily yeah. going to uh, result in a positive trial. So, so th- this comes from a multitude of different directions, some of them methodological, some of them issue of not listening to your prior data, or perhaps not even having enough prior data. I
0: see. And we'll be back with more of the interview. But first, let's take a break for a question of the week. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Ian Straley for Question of the Week. This is Step 2 CK Edition.
3: Alright, so, have a 24-year-old male involved in a motor vehicle collision on his motorcycle and activated as a trauma. A CT is done which shows no intracranial abnormalities and no abnormal um, fractures, but does identify a 3.3-centimeter thyroid nodule. The nodule is not palpable. He has no history of radiation exposure or family history of thyroid disease. After sedation with morphine, his vital signs are normal, and he has a seatbelt-shaped hematoma across his chest and hips. He's observed in the trauma ICU overnight, stepped down the next day, and requires only PO medications for pain. As part of this hospitalization, thyroid-stimulating hormone is done and is normal. In regards to the thyroid nodule, Which of the following is the most effective next step in management? Option A, ultrasound the thyroid in six months. Option B, measure thyroxine levels now. Option C, radioactive iodine uptake now. Option D, thyroid resection. Or option E, ultrasound guided biopsy. Hmm,
0: well, well, well. This is a common scenario. This is the so-called incidentaloma. This is the common scenario of the uh, uh, opportunistic screening. This person underwent thyroid cancer screening because they were in a motor vehicle accident and the chest CT caught that high. Well, 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 and it's a whopping three millimeters. That's nothing to get too excited about. Well, I guess I would say the least aggressive option on your list, which is repeat ultrasound in six months, um, is probably the right answer. It's the most palatable answer. And the other answers are far too aggressive for an incidental But I would go even further, and I would argue that the real right answer might be the least aggressive option, which is repeat ultrasound in six months. Is that right? That is correct. Ultrasound of the thyroid in six months. And I guess what I would say is I started to voice earlier, but then, then I, I didn't want to put it there, but I want to put it here. Uh, Even that might be overkill is what what I'm thinking (laughs) because I think we know in this country and clearly in the case of South Korea that the more you look at thyroids, the more you will find things in thyroids. And we know for one thing that the incidence of diagnosed thyroid cancer is going up and up and up and up over time. And the rate of death from thyroid cancer is an absolute flat line, as flat as the Midwest. Mm. It's just a pancake. We're finding
3: a lot more, and we're not improving outcomes. Okay. and that, so, yeah, We're probably finding things that aren't going to do anything. That implies a lot of extra costs, a lot of extra time, a lot of extra patient anxiety about those possible diagnoses. Yes.
0: Because after all, it's the C word. It's the cancer word. It's scary. And it's a lot of cost. And I guess in my time, not only have I seen people diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer or whatever, I've even seen people with the diagnosis of, we found a little bit of follicular lymphoma in there, a little bit of marginal cell lymphoma in the thyroid gland. And then they suddenly get put on the the diagnostic cascade, the therapeutic cascade, where you just get keep getting seen and scanned and see how things do and keep getting imaged, and you just get put on this machine. And part of this machine is built because Many people lack the evidence and perhaps lack the confidence to say, we can forget about this. That's something that we're not good at in medicine. When we don't have great evidence to do something, we just say, let's just keep an eye on it. And we believe that that's the safe bet. And that's probably what the boards is getting at.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a, prudent, a good lesson for people to think about.
0: Yeah. I think the, the worst case scenario would be you just cut out thyroids left, right, and center. <laughs> Unless of course you're in the thyroid cutting business then it doesn't sound so bad. Then it's good for you. It's good for you. <laughs> well, Ian, thank you so much for coming on Question of the Week.
3: You're welcome. Thanks again.
0: And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. Okay, let me ask you one last question, and this is a bit broader. Uh you know, I look through your publications, and I see publications looking at obviously the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, and whether or not that's a prognostic marker, which many many studies consistently show that it is. It's an important prognostic marker. Um, I see studies about um, how we can deploy better care um, in in high income countries. I see questions on how can we improve the translation uh, transition of drugs in different stages of drug development. You're looking at conflict of interest you're doing meta-analyses, you're doing outcomes research, you're looking at new drugs, you're looking at biosimilars. And I guess my question is, what what is motivating you to ask all these questions? Where where does this come from? You know, you're, you're, the research you find interesting is very broad. It's broader than a lot of people. I mean, you look at a lot of people's publications and you'll see, you know, clinical trial breast cancer, clinical trial breast cancer, clinical trial breast cancer. That's not enough for you. You want to ask all these questions. What motivates you? and why are you doing this and where does that come from and how can re- how can listeners become a critical thinker like this? Uh,
1: so I think that, that what links the different, uh, what, what may appear to be quite broad is actually the method of analysis, right? So what it essentially comes down to is um, this is predominantly a academic program of secondary uses of data, um, with additional modeling, typically based upon statistics. now that could be um, using prognostic markers, that could be clinical trials that are reanalyzed, that could be policy issues that are done. But really the what glues things together is is a secondary data use question um, and um, and a desire to answer questions from, Occasionally very simple methodologic uh, methods, uh, very simple methods, uh, statistical methods, but really um, trying to do that through pooling and larger data. It doesn't have to be, I mean, big data are defined lots of different way. I don't think that everything that I do is big data, but a lot of it is using a... uh, a basis of more than a single clinical trial is the answer. Yeah.
0: So I guess you're saying that uh, as the New England Journal of Medicine would call you a data parasite. You're a data parasite. You do secondary data, but I don't mean to use it pejoratively because I'm a data parasite too, and I think it should be a, a badge of honor. But I will yeah. go further and push you on this a little bit, because there are other people who do secondary data analysis, but they do cookie cutter projects. It's always the same. Outcomes for you know, outcomes of this, meta-analysis of this, this, this. Your projects aren't cookie cutter. They're different clinical questions. They're they're, they're very different questions and they have unique um, theses and unique things you're teasing out. So it's more than just the methods. You, you have a lot of, uh, there are a lot of topics that interest you, that you want to know. And I guess my question is, does that stem from your role as a doctor first? Are these questions that you encounter in your clinical practice that you seek the answer to? Or are these academic questions? Uh, where do these, where do the questions come from?
1: I think uh, the, I appreciate the question. And to be honest with you, until now, I hadn't really thought about that, but I, I guess the answer is some of the questions are clinical questions. You'll see that I you know, I do have a lot of questions that I try and answer in the breast cancer space, which is obviously uh, one that I am clinically active. Um, one of my roles is um, uh, I do have an administrative role through our provincial cancer care program where I'm in charge of systemic therapy for the the region of Toronto. So, um, some of the more policy-based questions, um, uh, you mentioned biosimilars as one, and, uh, and maybe conflict of interest, but the whole issue of, of health policy, drug approvals, um, I think comes uh, uh, to some extent from, from there, and especially the question of uh, how to define value. Uh, and I, when I mean value, I mean value to society rather than to an individual patient. I think it's a bit uh, more tricky to define value for an individual patient. Um so so I guess that's where some of that comes from. Um you know you wear different hats and you come up with different questions and you try and answer them in sort of a, an even way that you do that you try and answer all other questions.
0: I think that's well put. I guess I would say I want to I want to praise you again because I think there are lots of people who work in academia but not all of them are academics, but you are an academic. And I by that I mean that you're somebody who I think take seriously the idea that you're in a position where you can push knowledge in different directions, be that in how we deliver care, in how we think about prognosis in the clinic, how we think about the harms of therapies. Um, you're in this unique role, and, and I think you 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 see that, and that comes across in your work. And I think that one of the things that disappoints me is when I see many academics are almost not academics they like to just do the same thing over and over or kind of repeat the the slogans you hear at all these conferences that i go to you know the same slogans empty phrases they don't really ask if these things are true and can they be studied and and i think there's there's a difference and I, and i commend you for being in in the group of people i consider uh, true academics um but I, I won't i won't put you on the spot there um so i guess i will say uh, I just, I'll just i just let you have the final word on any topic you want. Um, but, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are trainees um, and they probably are maybe curious about what you think, what you would advise a trainee about anything from conflict of interest to, to a career in academic medicine. What do you tell the fellows that work with you? Um, what, what do you advise them?
1: Um, so I, I guess um, I'm going to try and split this into different um, boxes uh, to answer it. So first of all, I think from the perspective of asking questions, I think it's good to be, I'm not, I, I was going to use the word cynical, but I don't think cynical is right, skeptical. Um, there are pros and cons to it, pretty much every decision that is made clinically and also when you design a clinical trial. And I think that you need to be aware of that and when things, uh, whenever you see a clinical study that perhaps, uh, is positive but not by very much ask yourself the question of you know what would it take for this to have a slightly different conclusion mm-hmm. um so i think those those are the issues of don't just assume that because it's in a new england journal of medicine it's gospel truth um the, there's lots of reasons why you know this might not really end up in the way that you think it's going to end up so that's the first thing the second thing about academia or being an academic is um i i, I think it's actually quite a a difficult life. You, you you have to serve multiple masters, um, and if you don't really enjoy it, um, then it might not be free for you. And I think you have to ask yourself the question: Is it, are you the kind of person that is just happy to, you know, run clinical trials, and where really most of the intellectual property is somebody else's, but you are engaged in rather than a creator of some of that work. Um, or whether you actually want to be part of the uh, production of the data rather than just the consumption or the, the assistance in the production of the data and and I think that a lot of trainees may not necessarily know the answer to that um, uh, and it's worth taking a, you know a second and, and asking the question because you know you have to spend your evenings weekends occasionally you know writing grants and writing papers and you know I look at some of my colleagues who uh, perhaps are uh, quote less academic quote, and you know they have a you know they have time to spend on leisure and other activities. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, th- that's another piece of advice that I would say. And then um, the last one I would say is that you be very wary of burnout, and and figure out your way of managing it. And for me, part of that is having that balance between clinical and non-clinical. Um, Uh, work that I do. So, you know, uh, for me that actually prevents burnout, but I think that will be very different for each individual.
0: Dr. Amir, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and taking us through your thoughts. This was a fascinating study that came out this summer in the journal Cancer, and listeners can take a look at that paper. So thank you so much.
1: Okay. Thank you for the invitation and thanks for uh, discussion.
0: You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session, or email us at plenary session at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions.